Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. This week, the U.S. government established June 19th as Juneteenth National Independence Day, a U.S. holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. In honor of Juneteenth, artist and activist Charmaine Minifield will tell us about her latest project, Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives. Opening this Saturday at Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery, the immersive installation honors the over 800 unmarked graves within Oakland's African-American burial grounds. And later this hour, we talk to writer-director and former football player Matthew Cherry about Hair Love, his Oscar-winning animated short film that sweetly betrays the bond between fathers and daughters. But first... The distinguished historian Annette Gordon-Reed describes her new book on Juneteenth as a look at history through the medium of memoir, a Texan's view of the long road to Juneteenth, what happened afterwards, and how that influenced life in Texas, her family's life, and her own. Professor Gordon-Reed joined City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis recently via Zoom, And they started their conversation by exploring a quote from the book that claims, Texas is a white man. When people think of Texas, the iconic images are of a cowboy. And since most people don't realize that many cowboys were black, uh, there's sort of a Hollywood presentation of Texas that features white guys riding on the range or alternatively as oil men people out on a a derrick uh, or looking for oil strikes and things like that. And the image is of the cowboy, the oil man, the sort of a maverick type of person. And it's usually in Hollywood uh, has been portrayed as as a guy, Uh, not even so much women, but a white guy. And that's to be sure is the image of Texas (laughs) that people have. Indeed, there's so much that has contributed to general misunderstanding about Texas, beginning with the geographical division of East and West. Would you talk a bit more about those archetypes we associate with Texas and one that is missing? Yes, the oil man and the cattle rancher or the cowboy are the archetype figures that most people know that were brought together most famously in the film Giant, which you have to talk about when you talk about the history of Texas because it explains that and lays that out. So, so clearly the type that's missing is the plantation owner. And the plantation owner is part of the origin story of Texas because the father of Texas Stephen F. Austin brought families to Texas from the Deep South who came with enslaved people with the expectation that they were going to be able to use that labor system to create a cotton empire in Texas and sugarcane as well. So we don't talk very much about that, but slavery and the plantation owner are integral parts of the beginning of Texas up through to the Civil War and the end of the Civil War. Indeed, chapter three of the book details the history of Africans in Texas. And I was struck by your writing that origin stories are important for individuals as well as nations. 
Would you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, we like to know where we came from. Thinking about where we came from gives us some sense of who we are. We think that that is a part of our basic identity. Now, that may be true. Well, I think it is true to a great extent, but you can always obviously go in a different direction. But we look to that to have our bearings about our own personalities, and the country does it as well. Just think of the mountains, mountains of books that could stretch to Mars <laughs> about the founding generation in America and you know, what they mean to us, how we should view them, the battle over how we should view them. And the same is, holds true for Texas as well. And if you have an origin story that doesn't get it right or that leaves out significant parts, there's a danger that you may have certain misunderstandings about the place that you are considering or even yourself. You have to know as near the truth as possible about how things got started to help you get your bearings and understand where you might go in the future. So the origin stories of Texas and the origin stories of African people in Texas, I think really matter. And here you include Estebanico's story and the Spanish-speaking Blacks of St. Augustine. Yes. I say in the book, and I've said other places, that if you were to ask people who were the first or when the first people of African descent came to the North American continent, people would say Jamestown. Uh, they would cite Jamestown in 1619. And that's an important reference point, to be sure. But there were people of African descent in North America in the 1500s, 100 years before Jamestown, in St. Augustine, in the area that would become Texas, all of the places that the Spanish explorers traveled in the Americas, people of African descent were with them. And you don't think about that very much. Estebanico was mentioned in one of my classes, either fourth or seventh grade history that I took as a child, but pretty much in passing. And I talk in the book about you know, what difference it might have made to have spent more time thinking about those Africans. And so you would think not just about uh, people of African descent working on plantations, uh, not that they didn't have varied and interesting lives, and I have written about that myself, but it would give a broader sense of who Africans were. They were all over the world doing different types of things. Some of them left the Spanish explorers and went off and on their own and founded their own colonies and own societies, own towns, I should say. So to know that would have given me a more expansive sense of the possibilities of Black people in those early times and a more varied sense of what they were doing and of what they were capable of. Another aspect of the book I found so fascinating. You point out that no other state brings together so many disparate and defining characteristics all in one, that all the major currents of American history flow through Texas. How did growing up in Texas inform your work as a historian? Well, I think growing up in Texas made me think about the past because the results of the past, uh, the legacies of the past were all around me. I began life in a town that was still segregated. I was born in Livingston, Texas. That was segregated. And then when I was about six months old, my parents moved to Conroe, Texas, where I grew up. And I had the experience as a six-year-old of integrating our town's schools. It made me think about why that was a big deal. <laughs> you know, what, what is the big deal about people of different colors going to school together? And why would that ever have been a problem? Also, why when we went to the doctor, there was a separate waiting room for uh, Black people and white people. When we went to the movies, we had to sit in the balcony. What was that all about? Uh, people, to me, were people. And why were these divisions there? So I do think it was my first opportunity to think about how the past informs the present. And that led me on a road to becoming a historian, I believe. A dedicated teacher. And you write most eloquently about education as an expression of race uplift that 
becoming educated was an act of resistance. Would you tell us more about your own childhood education beginning at age six, as you touched upon a moment ago, and what school desegregation meant for your community in Conroe, Texas? Well, I should say that my education began before I got to school. My mother read to us uh, every night and made reading and literature, the idea of literature alive. I was well prepared when I went to school for what I was going to encounter, and I was eager to do so because she either instilled in me a love of learning or recognized that I had it and sought to cultivate it as much as possible because she was a teacher. She could order workbooks. She knew how to order workbooks and so forth. And so we had this unfortunate thing to me when we were little of uh, going to school in the summer (laughs) for the beginning of the summer, at least in the mornings. So this education early on was something that was seen as important to me. And when I went to Anderson, uh, I think it made my integration of the school into the school easier because I was a good student. I didn't cause any problems. I'm a basically even-tempered person. So I didn't give them any problems. And my teachers, Mrs. Daughtry, my first grade teacher and my second grade teacher, these are, I think, are the really formative years there at Anderson, were wonderful uh, to me. And I don't wonder if it was not, in part, not just because they were great human beings, but because my mother was a teacher. And there may have been some sense of camaraderie there, but they were great to me. Some of the kids were good and some not. (laughs) I had the experience of, and this is something else that made me think about race and think about the past and the present. People who would be very friendly to me at school, if I saw them out with their families other places, they would be cool uh, toward me. They might not really acknowledge our connection. And I wondered about why that was the case. And I understood that they knew, because you can tell when people genuinely like you, and I, and I think they did, but they also loved their parents and their siblings. And they were part of families where if it were known that they were friendly to me or that they liked me, they would get in trouble. So that too made me think about what's going on here in this society. You're sort of walking through these things that are puzzling and you can't quite get your arms around but you know there's something there. And I have always, since that time period, been trying to think about you know, that particular question, how people separate themselves in that way. It's an awful lot for a child to have to deal with. Yeah, yes, it, it is. But kids around the world deal with much worse than that. I had parents who loved me. I had my brothers. I had loving grandparents and immediate community that was supportive of me. And I think that that was, that nourished me and sustained me. My mother did say that I once broke out in hives, which might suggest that this was somewhat stressful to me. But, you know, as human beings do, when I look back on that, I focus on the better times, the good times, rather than that. I just, you know, that, those kinds of things I dealt with by understanding that this is the way the world was and I should try to seek friendship and have friendship and cherish it where I found it, but not expect that people who were not black were necessarily going to accept me because that was the reality of of that society. You write about a bust of you in (laughs) a public park. Would you elaborate on that? Well, Yes, there is. There was first a mural uh, that was put up on the wall in downtown in Conroe. And then people very kindly sponsored the creation of and display of a bust of me. There are sort of famous people from Conroe (laughs) in the park. There's a park with busts and mine is there, which, you know, obviously I could never have imagined when I was a little girl or any time before it actually happened, really, (laughs) that something like that would happen. But it was very, very flattering and gratifying to me. Were either of your parents alive when that came about? Unfortunately, no. Uh, My mother died about 30 years ago. 
you know, she saw me in law school and graduate from law school and get married and have a baby, but which were the things that were very important to her. Uh, my father died, uh, you know, in 2007. So he got some of this, but not all of it. That's one of the things that I really wish they could have been here for it because my mother put so much effort into me and had such hopes and expectations for me that it is a little, it's a little saddening to me that she doesn't get to see the results of what she did here because I attribute any success I have to the effort that she put into me. That's beautiful. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Annette Gordon-Reed and City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. If you're just joining us, we're listening to historian and author Annette Gordon-Reed talk to City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis about her new book on Juneteenth. Here, they discuss why Reed believes that patriarchy is central to the story of Texas. Patriarchy has been the center of a lot of things. People think of males as the, as the natural leaders in these places. I think it might be changing. I hope it's changing. Uh, I certainly, uh, the political situation in Texas now where people are fighting over voting and what can be put in the history books might have an opportunity to change all of that and to make it not just as these are sort of exceptional people, but to understand that there are a lot of you know, strong women in Texas and Male leadership is not, should not be the default. Why is it essential that we try our best not to apply our knowledge or perspective into the minds and circumstances of the past? Well, you know, we're always going to make judgments about things that people do in the past, but you can't let it overtake the task in my view of figuring out what people thought they were doing. Now we may have our, and we undoubtedly will have our opinions about what what they were doing, but it's more interesting to me when I read history that is trying to grapple with the thoughts and the feelings of people of the time. You know, some of the things we're not gonna like that they do, some of them we're gonna be neutral about, some of the things we'll admire, but It's really not about, for me, writing history, it's not just about my opinions. It's not about the world as I wish it were, because I don't see the point of going to the archives and pulling out information if you don't let that information take you where it would naturally lead and what it would suggest. And to try to be as open as you can and looking at the information. And sometimes you're gonna to come to conclusions. You're gonna have people whom you admire who do things that you don't like. And they may have in their minds, good reasons for that. And you have to say that, you have to grapple with that and talk about how contexts change, how people operating in one sphere can think that they're doing the right thing. And from your perspective, it's exactly the wrong thing. And even people at the time may have thought it was the wrong thing, but you're dealing with your subject. So 
for me, it's more interesting to have to read history about what people are actually doing and what they think they're doing, rather than me grafting my ideas about what they ought to have been doing onto them. And will you give the example of why we would presume that Native Americans would be sympathetic or identify with the enslaved African Americans of their era? Mm-hmm. I was I was shocked to learn that on the Trail of Tears, the Cherokee and Choctaw brought enslaved people with them from southern plantations. Yeah, that's an instance where I, I talk a little bit about my father romanticizing Native Americans because of this idea that there was a natural affinity between the two of them, because both of them were in conflict with European Americans. Well, that might make sense from our perspective, but we are grafting our racial attitudes onto people who did, who have very different views about things. And they had their reasons for doing this. I mean, again, this is a, an instance where you're looking at something, and I'm not going to say I don't make a judgment about that. I think slavery was wrong, obviously. But these groups of people were trying to stave off the deluge or being subsumed by European culture by adopting certain practices of European culture. And slavery was one of them. And so the natural affinity, now some people, not everybody had those views, not all Cherokee or Choctaw had the same views, but our understanding or my sort of romantic notion of a natural affinity or ties between the two of them really made no sense in the context of their society. It's striking to note the depth of patriotic attachment to the United States that Black people have shown throughout our history. And citing W.E.B. Du Bois, you write about the duality of what it meant to have this identity while a large portion of the country rejected that Blacks can even be true Americans. So what does it mean when there is a threefold identity of being a Black Texan? Well, it means coming to grips with the reality of a lot of the mythologies of Texas. And I talk a little bit about the Alamo and the reverence for the Texas Republic I mean, the idea of Texas having been its own nation for a time is a great source of pride for lots of people. And I can understand that. But as a Black Texan, when you reflect upon the fact that the Texas Republic was unabashedly a slaveholders republic in the constitution of the Republic, it explicitly promotes and protects slavery, unlike the American Constitution with persons held to service, they are very explicit about slavery in the Texas Constitution and about the fact that Black people, people of African descent, can't be citizens of Texas. So what do you do with that? I mean, on one hand, you're, we're called to be proud of the creation of this republic. But on the other hand, the passages in the Constitution make plain that people like me, my ancestors, uh, were considered inferior people fit for slavery and that the institution of slavery was going to be protected. So you have to find some way to thread that needle. Maybe there's no way to do it, but it creates a, a problem for African-Americans in particular. And I would say for whites, any whites who have a problem with the institution of slavery, what do you do with this? How do you how do we handle this question? And, and obviously, Texas is grappling with that now in the state legislature and uh, other places and trying to figure out what to do about this, how to teach this. What are you supposed to say to young people who you want to make proud about Texas, but you, you have to deal with this reality? Who was George Ruby? George Ruby was a Black man in the late 19th century who was something of a power broker in Galveston and who worked for black rights in Texas. I mean, I I found this story and I really want to find out more about him and Norris Cooney, 
uh, people who saw, you know, the, the sort of crack that was when the crack opened up a little bit and Black people had a bit more freedom after the end of slavery and during Reconstruction, he stepped into that and uh, protected Black workers and was involved in Republican Party politics when Republicans were considered radical and were <laughs> radical and in much very much in favor of Black rights. So it was the Republican Party of the 19th century. And he was a Black leader that we should know more about. And I, I hope now that I have discovered him for myself, I didn't discover him for every other people knew him, but writing this book, I really want to go back and ferret out much more about him and those, those people who, who were doing these things in a time that was still really, really difficult for Black people. Perhaps your next book. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this book shares its title with the final chapter on Juneteenth. Your scholarly work has been as a historian of slavery, studying the lives of other families through their family stories, you note. How do your family stories told in this chapter bring us to the meaning and importance of Juneteenth? Well, I think these stories tell us that we're all part of history in some way. Everybody listening, you, everyone, can could tell their family history through the history of where their family lived and its connections to the larger United States. I think in focusing on this particular moment in history about the end of slavery in Texas, it invites us to think about what was a major advance in human rights, not just in the history of Texas and the history of the United States, but the idea of ending legalized chattel slavery is something that should be commemorated, is something that we should all think about and think about the ways in which that day and what happened afterwards, before it and afterwards actually, have helped to shape all of us because we are the sum total of all of this. So I think by making it a family story, talking about, not just about my family, but talking about my family in a way that allows us to talk about Texas as, as in general and Texas as, as we said before, representative of the United States of America, it tells us something about the nation. So this is a time to reflect upon that. And I have been very much surprised in some ways and heartened by the degree to which people have embraced Juneteenth across the country. I think maybe all but about three or four states have some form of recognition of it. And I think it's because people instinctively understand that this is part of everybody's story. Just because it happened in Texas doesn't mean that the meaning of it cannot be felt by people all over the nation. I was hoping to end that you would read a passage I found powerful and moving that speaks to the reason Juneteenth should be a celebration as well as an observance. Mm -hmm. Please read on page 63 the sentence beginning, to be sure. Okay. I'd be happy to. To be sure, the institution of slavery itself circumscribed the actions of enslaved African-Americans, but it never destroyed their personhood. They did not become a separate species by the experience of being enslaved. All of the feelings, talents, failings, strengths, and weaknesses, all the states and qualities that exist in human beings remained in them. There's been too great a tendency within some presentations of enslaved people to lose sight of that fact in ways obvious and not. Professor, historian, and author Annette Gordon-Reed reading from her new book on Juneteenth. You can hear her interview with City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzis in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
Well, Sunday is Father's Day, and in honor of the holiday, let's look back at our interview with Matthew Cherry, former football player and writer-director of Hair Love, the winner of the 2020 Oscar for Best Animated Short. Hair Love follows the story of an African-American father struggling to groom his daughter's beautiful natural hair for the first time. Here, Cherry explains how he came across the inspiration for his story. I have a lot of friends that have young daughters. You know, they would hit me up and, hey, you know, I'm trying to do like this type of hairstyle. Could you send me some some tutorials? And so I'd get on YouTube. And obviously, you know, there were a lot of women, natural hair vloggers that were, you know, had these vlogs. But I also was coming across dad vlogs where they were doing their daughter's hair. You know, I'm very active on social media. And I'd always share these videos of like dads interacting with their daughters and moms interacting with their sons and daughters. And I don't know, it was interesting. Like the videos with the dads and the daughters would always go like crazy viral. And... It's kind of a double-edged sword because, like, I understood why they did because they were cute and they were funny. But then also there was this thing where I think it went viral because people weren't used to seeing African-American fathers playing with their kids in this way, you know, doing these different domestic menial tasks. And so that's really where the inspiration came from. And I was just like, you know, we need to make this normal. Like, parents, especially nowadays, they're, they're, there's no really gender norms like how they were back in the day where, you know, the wife stays home and she cooks and cleans and the dad goes to work. You know, now you just have to figure it out. Like if mom has to work early, dad has to be the one that gets the kids up, gets them dressed, do their hair, make the breakfast and, and go. So, you know, I just wanted to represent for kind of the modern family. I think, um, All marginalized groups have had a very limited opportunity to tell a myriad of types of stories. The more that we can normalize ourselves, and I think that's one of the biggest problems in the world right now, we look at each other as the other. We don't consider that, you know, people are parents, people are are fathers, people are mothers, people are children. And I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, it, it really is universal, and I think that people outside of, you know, being black or African-American can relate to it. And I think the more that we learn about the about each other, you know, the better the world will be. So I think the more we get opportunities to just tell a because often what happens is filmmakers are particularly filmmakers of color are burdened with having to tell all of our stories. And so if we just want to do a silly movie that's like a coming of age high school story, you know, people are like, where's the message? You know, or if we tell a message, then it can't be fun. So, you know, I think the more that we're just able to have this more variety in our storytelling, you know, in all forms, be that animation, live action, reality, you know, the better. For me personally, like, I love telling stories that normalize us in in whatever capacity. Obviously, I'm a former athlete, so those stories really appeal to me. I played sports ever since I was five years old. I started with baseball, then got into football. Played three sports in high school. Um, I I don't think a lot of kids do that nowadays because they're so specialized. You know, I was always a fan of sports, but I also was a fan of storytelling. You know, I used to watch uh, a lot of TV, a lot of movies. And I always would wonder, like, how these things get made. So when I was in high school, I was a part of the radio club, the TV club. You know, when I was in college, I majored in radio TV broadcast and media production. So I was always interested in storytelling. But because I grew up in the Midwest, you know, there weren't a lot of movies that were being made. And so I think a lot of times what you see, you know, around you, like, that's what you that's kind of the limit to your imagination. And so it wasn't until, you know, I made it to the NFL in my second year, I was playing with the Cincinnati Bengals. And one of my friends, he invited me out to L.A. for the BT Awards. And it was my first time ever being in L.A. And I really kind of took that trip as an opportunity to kind of let me test the waters with L.A. since I've never been out to California before. And I just remember just being really enamored by the city. It was all about production. And so I knew right then and there, like, all right, when I retire from the NFL, I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to try to figure this out. You know, being an athlete, you have the practice of you try something for the first time and you suck at it. You keep trying and you eventually get better. And I knew with filmmaking, it would be the same thing. So I really wanted to start from the ground up. Uh, I was a part of this program called Streetlights, which is a nonprofit organization that helps men and women of color get jobs as production assistants on set. And um, I went through that program and, you know, just worked my way up from PAing to directing music videos to short films to feature films and now doing uh, directing television. So it's been really awesome. And so, you know, working at Jordan Peele's production company has been amazing because he tells, he does a really great job of using genre, so thriller, horror, sci-fi, uh, fantasy, young adult, et cetera, in ways that 
they're kind of, uh, we always say it's like the medicine, you know, you, you put the medicine with the candy. So, you know, he's really big on telling these social messages, but also knowing them in ways that are commercial. So, like, if you saw Us or if you saw Get Out, you know, there was a deeper meaning behind these movies. But, you know, he did it in such a way that it was, like, commercially acceptable. And if you, you know, saw that in a straight drama, you may have been bored or, you know, a certain demographic may have been turned off. So, you know, I think just definitely want to continue operating in that space. And, you know, it's, it's the highest compliment ever from Jordan because, you know, I think he's just one of the best in the game right now. And he's really, I think a lot of creatives that when they get on, they just worry about themselves and they just try to tell their own stories and they live in this bubble. But Jordan has really just embraced other creatives and he's really given a lot of people opportunities. So, you know, he's just really putting his money where his mouth is and he's not only creating opportunities for himself, but he is for others too. Matthew Cherry, writer and director of Hair Love, speaking on working with Jordan Peele, breaking parenting gender norms, and the need for us to stop othering one another. In July 2020, Cherry was greenlighted by HBO Max to start work on a 12-episode animated television series based off Hair Love to be called Young Love. You can learn more about Cherry on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, filling in for Lois Reitzis. Black's Projects produces temporary public arts projects that connect Atlanta's artists and audiences through the creative power of place. Their next event begins Saturday, Juneteenth, with Charmaine Minifield's Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives. This project honors the more than 800 recently discovered unmarked graves in the African-American burial grounds of Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery. The project also celebrates the Ring Shout, a traditional African-American worship and gathering practice. Artist and activist Charmaine Minifield joined City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis to talk about the project, and they started by discussing how COVID delayed the event's opening by a year. I was in the Gambia during the pandemic and quarantine there unexpectedly. Yeah. And my return is specifically really dated based on being able to come back and execute this project. So it, it's sort of a homecoming for me, too. Yeah. Welcome home. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, but I'm so excited to just uplift the names and memories of those once lost in Oakland Cemetery this year. It feels really timely in all of that. Indeed. In 2017, the Historic Oakland Foundation began phased restoration of the cemetery's three-and-a-half-acre African-American burial grounds. Most of these plots did not have a headstone or a marker. And then the plans, unfortunately, were pushed back due to the pandemic. Where are they in the restoration process, do you know? This project marks the completion of that process. Wow. So we are celebrating, the finally, the restoration of the African-American burial grounds at Oakland Cemetery. Charmaine, when we spoke last year, we talked about some of the virtual elements focused on the ring shout. And then you asked listeners to upload their own interpretations of the ring shout. And I hear you laughing already. And tag flux on social media. What kind of feedback did you receive? You know, I have gotten so many amazing posts and responses to that invitation and the story of my being in the Gambia and searching for the origins of the ring shout and bringing that story all the way present to this project. It, it really marked sort of a movement for my work and for me in, in the idea of remembrance. And it was happening at such a volatile time that was so necessary, I think, in terms of healing and social justice work and, and a hopefulness of what could be, that I think people really embraced it and has followed the project ever since. Now, for listeners unfamiliar with the ritual, how would you describe a ring shout? Mm. A ring shout was the gathering of Africans in this side of the water when during enslavement we would gather in a circle and 
we would do call and response, singing, uplifting our voices together. And we used the floors of our gathering spaces, which were called praise houses. We used those floors as our collective and communal drum. And so, you know, in spite of the effort of dismantling community, we found community together. And in spite of the differences of our cultural origins, we found a way to communicate through rhythm and movement. And it it unified us. So that act of moving in a full circle, gathering in a circle, and then the entire room of us moving in circle and lifting our voices in call and response and using the floor as our collective drum and beating the floors with those sticks in our feet. Over generations, those floors became sacred in those communities where the praise houses exist. All of that is what a community member, a practitioner would experience when they would go to a gathering that would include a ring shout. Oh, I can only imagine how inspiring it must be. How will that be demonstrated at this weekend's events? Well, you know, we kicked off the project in Oakland Cemetery in 2019 with an actual performance by the Geechee Gullah Ring Shouters, the elders that are keeping that tradition. This year, there isn't a performance element, but the visual art of it will be presented as a site-specific installation and digital mapping or projection mapping on the interior of the praise house. So we're building a replica of a praise house right now on the African-American burial grounds at Oakland Cemetery. And through a number of sponsors and supporters, we were able to erect this replica large enough that we can, it's life size, the original sizes of them. And we would walk, we can walk in and see the ring shout as an installation, as a digital installation. And it's fully immersive. So the idea is for you to feel as if you're inside of that circle, that ring shout. It'll include the projection, mapping installation and the sound score. And the sound score is really important because like the ring shout gathers us, it also gathers different creative expressions. Like all things are sort of formed when that gathering happens. So you have movement and dance, you have music and call and response and song. And we have also included you know, other mediums like the visual with the actual projection mapping part. So the score was recorded by Melissa Jesse Taylor and Salah Nanta, and their group is called We Are JLA, which means Griot. And that score was recorded in First Congregational Church in the area, historically Black church in the area. And it will emanate from the interior of the praise house and the exterior of the praise house over the cemetery grounds. Okay. You did not know this, but it leads so beautifully into my next question. (laughs) In February, I spoke with the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews, who's the senior minister of First Church and Emory University professor of music. He is such a treasure. We discussed the documentary series from Dr. Henry Louis Gates, the Black Church, this is our story, this is our song. And Dr. Andrews is featured prominently in this series. He spoke about music as essential to the African-American experience. And he said, that is one of the fundamental aspects of what we were able to retain from our African cultural memory. How is that illustrated in Remembrance as Resistance? I think even as you ask that question, the the language itself demonstrates that. We retained our African identity through our cultural expression as ancestral memory, really. That alone was resistance. Because we were enslaved because we were, you know, really the backbones of this Western environment, but the layers of societal oppression that came through slavery and Jim Crow and subsequent history, all of that is something that the ring shout was in resistance to. We insisted, we asserted our African identity to affirm our lives. So 
the idea of remembering ourselves is that assertion. And so while I was in Africa and the Gambia, I explored how these origins express still in my cultural identity, like cultural DNA. And I, I called it encoded ancestral memory where our ancestors encoded in us our identity as a way to always find our family, as a way to always find ourselves and our way back home. All of that to me is resistance. The resistance that we are demonstrating is against the erasure of the memory of an entire generation of our citizens in this city. And that erasure is being corrected by remembering them. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Charmaine Minifield, the artist and activist behind Remembrance as Resistance, preserving Black narratives in commemoration of Juneteenth, events that begin this weekend at Oakland Cemetery. Charmaine, will the replica of the Praise House be on permanent display at Oakland? It is not permanent. It is going to be available for the public from June 19th through July 11th. During all hours of the cemetery, you'll be able to go. Um, We're encouraging folks to reserve a time to go inside. Because of COVID, we're limiting access. And we want everyone to have a really true experience inside of the immersive installation on the inside. And so we're limiting the numbers of folks that can go in, but groups are accommodated, you know, and walk up is also accommodated, but it'll be up through July 11. Why is Oakland Cemetery a fitting place to hold this event? First of all, Oakland is the one of the first sites that really exemplifies the complex history of the South. It was the burial grounds of Atlanta. It was segregated until only recently, some years back, Maynard Jackson is buried there. And there's prominent African-American leadership throughout history is buried there. There was a moment though in its history where as a part of their expansion, 800 graves from Slave Square was taken up and relocated to what is now the African-American burial grounds. And at the time, the citizens of Atlanta were outraged at how those souls were handled. So they established what became Southview Cemetery. They gathered their resources and bought the land and established Southview Cemetery. Is that history that we're bringing attention to, but also the fact that after so many generations and so much community need, the cemetery and its administration and board are all excited to invest the resources and the attention in restoring the African-American grounds. And through this technology that Georgia State bought, they were able to locate those 800 names, those 800 souls that were lost. Mm. I found the history to be really intriguing and timely, given all that's happening in the world. And Flux Project agreed with me. So we were able to create the project and remember those souls and reclaim their rightful place inside of the legacy of our city. Yeah. With the past year of our nation's reckoning with racial injustice and systemic racism, I wondered what new or added meaning remembrance as resistance takes on. Well, I think that it's, it goes to say that Oakland Cemetery is a site of a significant Confederate monument and grave site. And it was also the center of some response to that troubled history in the uprisings during last summer. I think that, you know, as we as a generation consider what our future is here forward, this work for me is an invitation to enter into sacred spaces like our ancestors did once with collective intention of wellness and thriving and freedom forward and conjure in that moment what we want this world to be. I feel like that is a timely response, even though it's been three years in the making. Racism is not new. Some of the displays of hatred that we've seen are not new to the African-American experience in particular, 
in this country, how it has come to light and the course of events that have bought it so present are interesting, um, but not even new either. I think that what's really interesting and inviting is we just survived as a globe, as a world, a global pandemic, and we are still thriving to survive that. And in that moment of pause, grieving and loss, I think we all are reevaluating our priorities and life itself in a very different way. So the project to me invites that introspection and that collective visioning forward for what we want to see as a just and equitable future forward. Artist and activist Charmaine Minifield speaking with City Lights host and executive producer Lois Reitzis about her new project, Remembrance as Resistance. The immersive installation event starts this Saturday and runs through July 11th at Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery. You can hear this interview in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Dragon Con's executive director, Dan Carroll, shares the latest information on our city's world-famous pop culture event, which plans to return live and in person this Labor Day weekend. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Droves. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights and check out our website, wabe.org slash citylights, where you can listen back to interviews and archived shows. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.